and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, June 1st through Tuesday, June 6th feature guest conductor David Afkam, joined by violin soloist Vadim Glusman. The program includes two works by Ravel bookending the program, Menuet Antique and La Valse. In between comes the Shostakovich Violin Concerto No. 1 and Debussy's La Mer. Here are Philip Usher's program notes on the Shostakovich Violin Concerto No. 1, a work lasting about 36 minutes. In February 1948, for the second time in his life, Shostakovich found himself the object of a bitter, politically motivated public attack. The first came on January 28, 1936, with the Pravda article, Muddle Instead of Music, to which Shostakovich ultimately responded with his powerful Fifth Symphony. He and a number of Soviet composers, including Prokofiev, were now accused of anti-democratic tendencies in music, formalistic perversion, and a fondness for confused neurotic combinations which transform music into cacophony. Shostakovich was at work on his first violin concerto when he read this latest criticism. He finished the score as if nothing had happened. He could point to the exact spot where his work was interrupted by this news, but as a friend recalled, the violin played semi-quavers, 16th notes, before and after it. There was no change evident in the music. But Shostakovich did not know how to proceed, and at first he even considered suicide. Although each of the composers attacked confessed complicity with the cult of atonality, dissonance, and discord, it was difficult to figure out how to write music of atonement that was, at the same time, honest work. For a while, Shostakovich turned to writing mass audience works, such as patriotic choral pieces and film scores in a popular style, the puzzling products of a private, deeply introspective artist who suddenly set his sights on the marketplace and the cineplex. The film work at least put money in his pocket. After the February announcement, he was dismissed from his teaching position at the Moscow Conservatory. At the same time, he chose to withhold his song cycle from Jewish folk poetry, his fourth string quartet, and the first violin concerto, which he labeled Opus 77, the first because the late Stalin years were fiercely anti-Semitic, and the latter because its dark and dissonant idiom was precisely what the authorities did not want to hear. Stalin died on March 5, 1953. Prokofiev died an hour before him. The April issue of the official Soviet music journal carried Stalin's obituary on page 1 and Prokofiev's on page 117. With Stalin's death, the road ahead appeared more welcoming to an artist of Shostakovich's sensibilities. In due time, he released the works he had relegated to the shelf and wrote a new magnificent and fearless symphony, his tenth. Shostakovich also made some apparently minor changes in the violin concerto and gave it a new up-to-date opus number, 99. His friend, David Oistrock played it with the Leningrad Philharmonic in October 1955, accepted the composer's dedication, and took the work on tour. He eventually gave the American premiere in December in New York City and made the first recording. Shostakovich eventually chose to revert to the concerto's original opus number, both as a way of pointing out that it was an earlier work and as a silent reminder of the reasons he had chosen to hide it 
for seven years. Ultimately, Opus 99 was reassigned to music for the film The First Echelon, which was written in 1955-56. The violin concerto, however, is still sometimes known by the later number, its confused identity a lasting mark of its composer's double life. The concerto that Shostakovich dared not release is, as its composer obviously knew at the time, a troubled and troublesome work. It begins with music as profoundly sad and searching as anything he was to write, a long, rhapsodic nocturne that comes from the blackest hour of the night. The scherzo that follows is neither playful nor light. It certainly is no joke, as the Italian word implies. It does play with Shostakovich's four-note musical monogram, an egocentric outburst that wouldn't have found favor with Stalin. The scherzo relieves the pent-up tensions of the first movement only as a nightmare ends a night of tossing and turning. Oistrock, in a 1956 article explaining and also defending the concerto, speaks of the tremendous vital force which is undeniably impressive here, as is the ominous and demonic tone. The third movement finally offers a certain sense of reason and calm as the bass line measures out the steady repetitions of a Pasacaglia theme. This does, in its own straight-jacketed way, provide some release. Shostakovich writes nine variations over this somber thread, with the theme given to different instruments each time. Eventually, the solo violin takes wing, launching an enormous cadenza, a brilliant high-wire act Shostakovich might well have set apart as a movement of its own that plays freely with material from the previous movements and sails off at last directly into the finale. Above this boisterous, headlong music, Shostakovich writes the word burlesque, setting his allegro con brio apart from other finales in the way that Mahler often cast an unsettling, satirical light over familiar dance music. Oistrakh, in his discussion, mentions merriment and the sense of a joyful folk holiday, but that, as in much of Shostakovich's most outgoing music, barely masks a deeper sorrow and anger. Philip Husher's program notes on Dmitry Shostakovich's Violin Concerto No. 1. And now on to Debussy's La Mer, three symphonic sketches. The music lasts about 26 minutes. Although Debussy's parents once planned for him to become a sailor, La Mer, subtitled Three Symphonic Sketches, proved to be his greatest seafaring adventure. Debussy's childhood summers at Caen left him with vivid memories of the sea, worth more than reality, as he put it at the time he was composing La Mer some 30 years later. As an adult, Debussy seldom got his feet wet, preferring the seascapes available in painting and literature. La Mer was written in the mountains, where his old friend the sea, always innumerable and beautiful, was no closer than a memory. Like the great British painter, J.M.W. Turner, who stared at the sea for hours and then went inside to paint, Debussy worked from memory, occasionally turning for inspiration to a few other sources. Debussy first mentioned his new work in a letter dated September 12, 1903. The title he proposed for the first of the three symphonic sketches, Calm Sea Around the Sanguinary Islands, was borrowed from a short story by Camille Mauclair, published during the 1890s. 
when Debussy's own score was printed, he insisted that the cover include a detail from The Hollow of the Wave of Kanagawa, the most celebrated print by the Japanese artist Hokusai, then enormously popular in France. We also know that Debussy greatly admired Turner's work. His richly atmospheric seascapes recorded the daily weather, the time of day, and even the most fleeting effects of wind and light in ways utterly new to painting, and they spoke directly to Debussy. In 1902, when Debussy went to London, where he saw a number of Turner's paintings, he enjoyed the trip but hated actually crossing the channel. The name Debussy finally gave to the first section of La Mer, from dawn to noon on the sea, might easily be that of a Turner painting made 60 years earlier, for the two shared not only a love of subject, but also of long, specific, evocative titles. There is something in Debussy's first symphonic sketch, very like a Turner painting of the sun rising over the sea. They both reveal, in their vastly different media, those magical moments when sunlight begins to glow in near darkness, when familiar objects emerge from the shadows. This was Turner's favorite image. He even owned several houses from which he could watch with undying fascination the sun pierced the line separating sea and sky. Debussy's achievement, though decades later than Turner's, is no less radical because it uses familiar language in truly fresh ways. From dawn to noon on the sea cannot be heard as traditional program music because it doesn't tell a tale along a standard timeline. Although Debussy's friend, Eric Satie, reported that he particularly liked the bit at quarter to eleven, nor can it be read as a piece of symphonic discourse because it is organized without regard for conventional theme and development. Debussy's audiences, like Turner's before him, were baffled by work that takes as its subject matter color, texture, and nuance. Debussy's Second sketch, too, is all suggestion and shimmering surface, fascinated with sound for its own sake. Melodic line, rhythmic regularity, and the use of standard harmonic progressions are all shattered gently but decisively by the fluid play of the waves. The final Dialogue of the Wind and the Sea, another title so like Turner's, captures the violence of two elements, air and water, as they collide. At the end, the sun breaks through the clouds. La Mer repeatedly resists traditional analysis. We must agree, Debussy writes, that the beauty of a work of art will always remain a mystery. In other words, we can never be absolutely sure how it's made. La Mer was controversial even during rehearsals when Debussy told Stravinsky the violinists tied handkerchiefs to the tips of their bows in protest. The response at the premiere was mixed, though largely unfriendly. It's hard now to separate the reaction to this novel and challenging music from the current Parisian view of the composer himself, because during the two years he worked on La Mer, Debussy moved in with Emma Bardock, the wife of a local banker, leaving behind his wife, Lily, who attempted suicide. Two weeks after the premiere of La Mer, Bardock gave birth to Debussy's child, Claude Emma, later known as Chuchu. Debussy married Emma Bardock on January 20th, 1908. The night before, he conducted an orchestra for the first time in public in a program which included La Mer. This time, it was a spectacular success, though many of his friends 
still wouldn't speak to him. Program notes by Philip Husher on Debussy's La Mer. I'm Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening. <laughs>